0: Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chad Michael Bouton. And thank you so much for clicking on another brand new episode of Hindsight is 2200. Thank you all so much for all the love and support. Truly, it means a lot to me every time I see a new follow or an email. It really just makes me smile and just, you know, gives me that extra pep to keep going. You know, you guys really make this possible and you always motivate me to do just even more. So thank you guys so much. If you missed the last episode, I sat down with Felix of Access Your Life. They are a company out of the UK doing some great things, helping people with um, motor disabilities, you know, like muscular dystrophy to find the right chairs. So the power wheelchairs or the wheelchairs and to get them for affordable prices. Cause um, I don't know if anybody of you guys out there know, but those things are not cheap and um, they're not easy to get. So um his partner has a motor disability, and he was just very inspired to help fix the problems that he saw in that community. So if you're interested in listening to that, please go check it out. It's on Anchor, it's on Spotify, and it's on Apple Padca- Apple, Apple Podcast. Hindsight is 20 200. All right. Well, today we have a very good friend of mine on to talk about a lot of different things. Um, and not only she is a very dear friend of mine, I, I consider her a mentor, Um, she really helped me a lot to find myself as a professional, um, because when I first started working with her at Southeastern Guide Dogs, I had zero work experience and, um, getting the work under her for pretty much the majority, if not all of my time at Southeastern Guide Dogs, um, truly one of the biggest honors. She's an absolutely amazing human being, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast. So please welcome my guest, the great and powerful Lisa O'Kane. (laughs)
1: great and powerful I will take that hello happy to be here
0: yeah it's great to talk to you it seems like you're doing well
1: I am I am it is uh it is nice to finally be shaking off a little bit of the uh the COVID lockdown that Mm -hmm. we've all been experiencing particularly on uh the Southeastern Guide Dogs campus Mm -hmm. things are starting to look a little bit more lively which is always Mm -hmm. exciting for everyone
0: Right, and we're definitely going to get into the work that you do for Southeastern Guide Dogs, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't get to talk to you about everything leading up to um, Southeastern Guide Dogs, because um, as I know and some of the listeners know, uh, <laughs> um, you've lived a very interesting um, life, lots of adventure in your life.
1: <laughs> I I moved around a little bit, that's for sure. More uh, of a, a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a little bit's an understatement, uh, but yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if you could just, you know, just introduce yourself, that'd be a great way to start. And then we can just start unpacking Lisa O'Kane and who she is
1: let's do it all right so lisa okane um like you said the director of volunteer services at southeastern guide dogs i have been at this position for almost 10 years which is by far the longest i have ever held a job (laughs) so yay southeastern guide dogs my background is actually in zoos and aquariums so Mm -hmm. prior to working at southeastern guide dogs i was the director of education at Bluff Lake Nature Center in Colorado. Prior to that, I was an outreach coordinator and zookeeper for the Alaska Zoo in Anchorage. Prior to that, I was the director of education at Gulf World Marine Park in Panama City Beach. Prior to that, I rescued seals and sea lions for the Marine Mammal Center of Monterey, California. We could keep going, but that's probably a pretty good little sample for you.
0: <laughs> I, I, I told you guys, adventure. That's the key word when it comes to Lisa. She's lived definitely one amazing um, worthwhile life with lots of different scenes and looks. And Alaska is definitely the one I want to talk about the most. But um, we'll, we'll start off by asking... Um, where does your love of animals come from? I mean, were were you always just drawn to animals from a young age?
1: That's a great question. You know, mm-hmm. I think I was. My, my father is actually a wildlife biologist. And so I grew up with a very uh, intense kind of respect for mm-hmm. reverence of nature. A lot of my best memories as a kid were walking around the Smoky Mountains where my mother's family's from. My dad had a little fishing boat. We would go out on the bay all the time. And you know, obviously a collection of pets, which I would (laughs) sort of gather (laughs) as far as I could. So yeah, I think it goes back all the way. My first kind of job, quote unquote, was actually volunteering at my local zoo in Panama City Beach. And that kind of opened up a whole lifelong desire to, um, not only to work with animals, but obviously to be working in animal welfare, conservation, spreading the word. And that's really sort of been a defining factor of my life
0: ever since. Mm -hmm. So, um, your degree, um, is in zoo management, you know, like, um, what exactly does that entail? What the, what does that type of degree look like?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's uh, it's even a slightly harder than that, believe it or not. My, uh, my degree is actually from the University of Central Florida. Mm-hmm. And it is a degree in hospitality management with an emphasis in theme park and attraction management, mm-hmm. which you could only get probably in Orlando or perhaps <laughs> Las Vegas. Um, and really, for me, my, my original goal was to be working more on the operation side of things mm-hmm. in a zoo or or something like that. But I actually did a summer working seasonally in Yosemite National Park when I was 22. And I think that experience kind of shifted the lens for me because I was working for the hotel within the park, but I found myself being very, very jealous of all the rangers who got Mm -hmm. to go around, do interpretive programs, really educate the guests rather than just kind of checking them into the hotel. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I, I kind of, started volunteering at other places and learned a lot more about the science uh, my time at the Marine <laughs> mammal Center was pretty critical for me to kind of pick up on a lot of that um, science knowledge that I lacked so mm-hmm. that led to working at a outdoor science school a wilderness society and sort of eventually made my way uh, to where I, I became full-fledged you know qualified to work hands-on
0: with animals. Mm-hmm. So um you're originally from Panama City area, which is kind of right in the back doors of where I grew up. <laughs> Small world there. exactly Florida Pan Vandals, <laughs> that's know, for sure. right? <laughs> So um when did you move away for the first time um after college once you got that degree um because i mean you've been all over the place
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know it's kind of hard to keep track so yeah yeah, started started life in panama city florida Mm -hmm. and then like i said went on to the university of central florida and i really i had always kind of wanted to travel but that sort of seemed like a far away idea Mm -hmm. really but i actually i was um had the opportunity to study abroad when I was in college and I took, yeah, I took, it was really fun. I took, um, a semester and studied, at Griffith University, which is in Surfer's Paradise, Australia. Oh, wow. And yeah, that was a a really, really fun time. And once my internship was over, I was kind of working as an apprentice at a fine dining restaurant, Mm -hmm. very unsuccessfully, Mm -hmm. but I had a great time when that (laughs) internship ended. I was able to take a couple of months to just sort of backpack around Australia. And then I think that was really a defining moment for me in terms of kind of, um, beginning to realize how big the world is Mm -hmm. and how many experiences there are, and that you don't have to be a rich person to see the world, Mm. which I think was one of the misconceptions I, I had growing up is that you had to be rich to be able to do all this stuff. So, um, so that kind of opened the door for me. And then I had one more semester of college that I needed to complete. And then, um, I, I, actually, I just kind of, um, like a gunshot. I moved out to California, uh, (laughs) right after college, I'd always wanted to experience the West coast. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing, like I said, a summer in Yosemite national park. Uh, then I moved to big bear California for a winter. That was lovely. Learned how to snowboard learned. I'm terrible (laughs) at it. And, uh, (laughs) one thing led to another. I found myself in Monterey for the next gig and, um, love of travel and love of, you know, that career path was born, I guess. Mm.
0: yeah, I um, super jealous that you got to spend some time in Australia. That's definitely very high on, on my bucket list. and that that is true. Like, I myself have always grown up thinking, travel its you've got to be rich, you know, like i always I always tell people if I won the lottery, I would just travel the entire world and go everywhere that I could because I've always perceived it like you said, as something that you have to have a lot of money just to do.
1: Right, absolutely, and it and it's it's so it's so not true, and um you know I think particularly what I found is some of the times when I have owned the least were some of the times that I've been the most happy, mm-hmm. and uh, as an example, um, that summer that I worked in Yosemite National Park. I was a seasonal employee, and so I showed up with a backpack and (laughs) uh, I think I had a cowboy hat, a backpack, (laughs) uh, a big old journal that I was, you know, excited to fill with memories and uh, employee housing was actually, it was a a tent. Um, It was, Hmm. they called it a tent cabin because it had a wooden floor Mm -hmm. and it had wooden support beings, but it was, you know, full on tent and, uh, and I had a roommate, it was a 10 by 10 square that i shared with somebody so essentially i had five feet by 10 feet to myself as the human and you know obviously no air conditioning or heater or we had these uh rickety little army cots that we lived in you know and again i i owned what was in my little backpack and Mm -hmm. that was you know when i realized that you don't have to you know stay someplace fancy and you don't have to put on makeup or dry your hair to Mm -hmm. be, you know, a human in this world, Uh, (laughs) you know, and and how, how very little that it takes to be happy. Mm -hmm. It, uh, I think that was a a pretty defining moment for me. And as, as a result, you know, probably over the last couple of years, I've acquired more stuff than I should have, but I still (laughs) consider myself somewhat of a minimal minimalist Mm -hmm. uh, to concentrate more on those experiences rather than those things, you know,
0: that, that, that's lovely. I, I love what you just said, because, You know, I I hate to interject my own personal. uh, You know, I love it. Let's do it. (laughs) It's just you know, I 100% agree with that because um, I was completely fine with the idea of working with Southeastern Guide Dogs for the rest of my life. You know, stable income, the house. You know that routine, and then COVID just comes in and ruins everybody's life (laughs) Uh, because I'm not. I'm not the only one, (laughs) Um, but. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I, I didn't have any fun working as a janitor for six months that that's an experience right. I could go about. But right, right. Um, ha- having this basically, um, I'm earning my own money by basically asking for jobs to do when it comes to either journalism or now broadcasting I always tell people that well, I hated that I wait so waited so long to decide to become an advocate and to actually do stuff like this because I've never been happier. Um, and it's just funny when you feel like, oh, well, you're you're supposed to be doing this. You're be, you're supposed to be working a nine to five job. You're supposed to be traveling to work. You're you know you're supposed to, you know, have a wife and kids. Um, you're supposed to do everything that society quote unquote, expects of you. But when you don't have any of that, and you're just kind of like living day by day, sometimes that can just be fulfilling enough. And for me, um, am I where I want to be right now? No, but I'm getting there slowly, but surely. And I'm having fun. And I think that's what matters the most to me right now is that I wake up every day loving the life that I'm living, having very little.
1: Yeah, I think that's the way the way it is, you know, and Mm -hmm. I've thought about this a lot in recent years is, you know, it seems like a lot of the, you know, quote unquote advice that we were given when we were younger, you know, really did not set us up for success because Mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, you you get a job that you hate (laughs) so that you can make enough money to buy things to make you feel better about the fact that you're genuinely unhappy because Mm -hmm. you don't like your job. But now you can't quit your job because you have to be able to pay for the things that you're Mm -hmm. buying to make you feel happy because you're not feeling fulfilled anywhere else in your life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for better or worse, I think that's why I've always kind of um, gone in the direction of nonprofits and conservation Mm -hmm. and, you know, jobs like that, because at the end of the day, I have always felt that I want what I'm doing to be aligned with who I am. Mm. And that's probably the most important thing to me, you know, to mm-hmm. my to my financial detriment often. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but, right. but again, you know, um, I think it's all about the experiences that we have that make right. us who we are. And that's the important thing.
0: Absolutely. That's just perfectly said. Um, so when did you end up in Alaska? <laughs> so did you go yes, from uh, Alaska. California, was it California then Alaska? <laughs>
1: Well, I, California, uh-huh. and then I bounced back to Florida actually okay. for about two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was supposed to be just a quick little pit stop, but mm-hmm. I ended up getting this amazing opportunity to be the director of education at uh, Gulf world Marine park, which is a Marine mammal rehabilitation center up Ooh. in Panama city. And I got to, um, educate the guests, educate mm-hmm. the public, uh, educate children. And then I also got to learn a lot and assist with a uh, lot of the Marine mammal rehabilitations. So I got Yeah, it was amazing. I got up close and personal with uh, a lot of dolphins. They were Mm -hmm. my favorite. Uh, We had sea lions, sea turtles, the whole shebang. But specifically, the dolphins were Mm -hmm. the greatest thing for me. And uh, particularly, you know, most people think of bottlenose dolphins when they Mm -hmm. think of dolphins, but that's actually just one of many species Mm -hmm. of dolphins. And uh, at our marine mammal facility, we actually rescued uh, several of this other kind of dolphin, it's called a rough toothed dolphin. Hmm. They're not, most people haven't heard of them. I had never heard of them until I started working there. They're not as cute as a bottlenose dolphin. It's kind of like if you could imagine a bottlenose dolphin and an alligator had a baby, this is like kind of what it would look like. But um at that time, I believe that Gulf World was the only marine mammal park facility that rehabilitated this specific species of dolphins. Yeah. Um so whenever any of them would strand anywhere on the coast, they would all get sent uh, to our facility so they could be together because they are a pelagic species and they live in very large pods. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wanted to keep them all together. But uh, but yeah, I spent about two years working with them, got to the point where, you know, not only did I have my favorite dolphins, but mm-hmm. the dolphins had their favorite people. Yeah. And uh, And I was lucky that I don't know if I was ever a dolphin's number one favorite person, but I was certainly (laughs) on the running for two or three. And and that was awesome. So about two years of that, and then I had the opportunity to actually move up to Alaska, Mm -hmm. um, which was great. Uh, And I was able to move up to Alaska and got a job as a zookeeper at the Alaska Zoo. Mm -hmm. I think all that time I had spent at the Marine Park had really gotten me prepared for what it was like, you know, to work with those large animals. Mm -hmm. at the alaska zoo they specialize of course in arctic and sub-arctic animals Mm -hmm. so no bottlenose dolphins Um, (laughs) but uh it was wonderful because uh polar bears and moose brown bears caribou foxes snowy owls you know you name it and uh and it was wonderful because i i really got to dive right into Mm that and uh and you know, truly just some of the most impactful moments of my life Mm -hmm. were spent in that little zoo. It was small enough that, you know, um, we were only on, I think it was 20, 22, 24 acres ish. Mm -hmm. There was about 50 employees. And so you knew everybody, you knew all the animals, all the Mm -hmm. animals knew you and uh, uh, many, many, many wonderful experiences at that zoo. And honestly, I, I would have stayed forever. Mm. I, I really would have, I, which is weird for a Florida person to say, but <laughs> I don't really like the heat or humidity, and I love snow and I love seasons. And it took me about a year and a half to two years to really feel like I fit into Alaska. It's mm-hmm. a difficult place. You got to kind of figure out your way. But once I did, oh, it was just, it was incredible. So, mm. um, I kind of got to a point In my late 20s, where I had a realization that if I was going to leave, I needed to leave now or I was Mm. never going to leave. And Mm. uh, and the sort of the catalyst, of course, was wanting to be closer to my family, knowing (laughs) that, you know, as a person who didn't have a family, it was easy enough for me to bounce back and forth. But if I wanted to kind of settle down, have some Mm -hmm. kids, you know, throwing everybody on a plane to go down to Florida a couple (laughs) of times a year just didn't seem reasonable. Yeah. So um, so, you know, with many tears. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And a lot of sadness. I I said goodbye to Alaska, and then first stop was Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, and I was in Colorado for about two years. And then after that, my sister had a baby here mm-hmm. in Florida, and I said, "Oh darn it, I'm gonna have to move home, aren't I?" And uh, <laughs> so I did, <laughs> and uh, and I've been here ever since.
0: Yeah. Oh well. So I got I got I got a ton of questions just from that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Let's do it. Uh, so first thing first, that's polar bears. So yeah. you got to work with legit hands-on-hands, hands with like, I want to say hands-on-hand, but, but you got to work with polar bears.
1: Um, well, that was pretty incredible. Now, I will say I was never in charge of the polar bears. That uh-huh. was another shift, mm-hmm. but I got to assist with polar bears. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically, I got to help sometimes when we would be doing annual medical examinations. Mm-hmm. One of the things it, about working with large carnivores like that is that there's a lot of rules in place from um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. as well as the Association of Zoos and Aquariums about like how close you're allowed to get, mm-hmm. what kind of interactions just for safety's sake. So although we did a lot of training with the polar bears, positive reinforcement, all of that kind of stuff, we weren't actually able to get hands on with them except right. for once or twice a year when they had their met, uh, their annual vet visits mm. and things like that, because they would get tranquilized, um, mm. <laughs> for those procedures. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the moment that those bears were tranquilized, I was petting all over them and I was loving yeah, all over them because yeah. it was the only time that you really could, you know, mm. I mean, they were wonderful. They'd listen to you. They would do all the behaviors that mm. you asked of them. We had really good relationships with the bears, but you just, you have to be careful. I mean, again, yeah. it's a 1300 pound predator as yeah. it were. But um, but I'll tell you, as a person who has touched the bear—not as soft as I expected. <laughs> it was not as delightful <laughs> as I expected. The, uh... <laughs> it's the the
0: rumor's not true.
1: Yeah, they do not—they do not feel like little cotton balls as the Coca-Cola ads would would mm-hmm. let you think. It's actually—it's interesting because polar bears have um, well, a couple of things. They have fairly coarse very coarse hair. And yeah. it's actually hollow in the middle, like a straw, mm-hmm. which helps it to not freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're in, in colder climates, that actually kind of helps with that. Additionally, it's not white, it's right? Actually, right? Yeah, it's transparent. Yeah, because yeah. if it was white, it would reflect the heat, which you don't want. Their skin is black underneath to help mm-hmm. soak in that heat. Um, but the biggest thing is that polar bears actually, they create um, an oil, it's an oily sheen that is all over all over their hair, um, to help them stay water repellent mm. um so kind of like you know if you were to put an oil on a leather jacket or something mm-hmm. like, like that kind of helps protect it so that the water crystals will just kind of shake off mm-hmm. but that oil feels like oil yeah it kind of smells like spoiled <laughs> salmon you know and so yeah i was so excited to pet these polar bears and then i yeah. did and i was like oh where is the sink yeah this was, was less exciting than i, I hoped. Where's,
0: where's the where's the um the perel
1: <laughs> yeah yes exactly like let me get 15 scoops of the uh, sand hand sanitizer
0: yeah yeah I, I recently learned that I, I don't know what I was watching but uh, yeah there's like someone's like you know that polar bears aren't really white and I'm just like what dang true and I looked it up and went like, they're black yeah <laughs> like, I was their just like skin what is black.
1: <laughs> I know it's crazy their skin is black they have black gums you know and uh and depending on the specific polar bear They'll have different tents to them. Um, mm. so when I was working there, we had two polar bears. One was named Apoon and the other Aww. was named Lutic. Oh, that's a, a
0: cute. <laughs> yeah, Apoon
1: was pretty pure white, but Lutick had a um kind of a peculiar yellow color to him. Mm. Um and in certain certain parts of him, he was it was almost like a the edges of orange, mm. you know. And you're like, that is not correct. But mm. <laughs> he was like, I'm sorry, this is just my color, you know.
0: <laughs> so um when it comes to, like, the, the rehabilitation of these animals, um, what really, um, what was your role in that? Um, um, especially, you know, if you want to talk about the work you did with the dolphins, because I think that that's so cool. Um, and it's, it's, of course, um, a very, you know, touchy subject nowadays, you know, with all the things with people not really liking the idea of, you know, captivity and, you know, that type of stuff anymore, especially, you know, with the whales, um, the tigers. So, um, you know, I definitely would love to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That is Mm -hmm. such a great question and so important to bring up. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting to kind of see how the climate has shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, I have some, I have some, I have some thoughts on that <laughs> and uh the biggest one is that i implore people to understand that not all zoos and aquariums are created equal mm-hmm. they just aren't mm-hmm. um you have people like tiger king who are an abomination and mm-hmm. the things that they are doing are absolutely tragic
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you have roadside zoos you have horrible things um and, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have accredited facilities mm-hmm. and that's the really, really important thing. Um, there's a lot of different accreditations that zoos and aquariums can apply for the, the most well-known ones are the association of zoos and aquariums gives mm-hmm. an accreditation to the highest standard of mm. zoos and wildlife rehab centers. The Alliance of Marine Mammal Parks and Aquariums does the same thing on the marine mammal side of things so in order for an organization to be accredited by those two institutions
0: mm-hmm. there
1: is so much that goes into it um, as mm-hmm. far as the Size of the enclosure, the quality of the food, the rigorous training, uh, ensuring that the animals are getting environmental enrichment and Mm -hmm. education, and that you know the biggest thing that I want people to understand is that when you're dealing with an accredited zoo or aquarium, and most of the the big ones that you're going to see here in the United States, at least, are the Denver Zoo, the Houston, you know those. Those main ones mm-hmm. um, that are a big, big organization. The main thing I want people
0: to—yes, <laughs> he wants to know too. <laughs> he wants to know too. Uh, the
1: main thing that I want Andros, your guide dog, to know, and our listeners, is that um, in order for an animal to in human care, the animal needs to be not able to survive in the wild. Mm. Essentially, it has been illegal for many, many, many decades to go out and just randomly collect an animal from the wild and put it in human care. That that doesn't happen. So Mm. instead, what you're seeing is you have animals in the wild who Mm. are orphaned, they're Mm. injured, they're deformed, they're separated from their mother before they have Mm -hmm. a chance to learn how to take care of themselves. Um, or sometimes she'll have an animal like a bear who gets too used to people and food and they're becoming, they're becoming dangerous because Mm -hmm. they're showing up around people. And obviously that's not a good thing. And so, (laughs) you know, you don't, you don't have a lot of options for those animals. Mm -hmm. Um, one of them can be to send that animal, to a loving accredited yeah. wildlife rehabilitation center where rather than um exterminating the animal mm-hmm. which you know happens right that animal has a chance to live out its life and mm-hmm. so all of the animals in the organizations that i've worked with have all been deemed unreleasable mm. by um by a lot of different government entities right. that are you know they're independent of the zoo so it's not mm-hmm. like the zoo's like oh you can't survive come on over here you right, know, right there's reviews that need to take place and so as a result i believe you know having places like that where obviously everybody agrees an animal's place is the wild if the animal can survive there mm-hmm. if the animal can't survive there then allowing it to be in a facility where it's loved and cared for and educated and enriched. It's not as good as the wild, but if Mm -hmm. the other option is literal death, you know, it seems it starts to seem a little better. And particularly when you couple that with the mission Mm -hmm. of those zoos and aquariums and wildlife rehab centers, which is essentially to spread the word about Mm -hmm. the plight. A lot of times of those animals, what they've been through, um, ways that we can protect them. Mm you know scientists have all kind of agreed behavioral scientists that in order for a person to really wrap their head around a concept as abstract as conservation mm-hmm. is that they really need to have a personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they get that personal connection through actually seeing one of those animals right Right. and then all of a sudden it's not some abstract concept of a random polar bear you know sitting on an iceberg in some sad picture that you saw (laughs) you know now you you're looking at the polar Mm -hmm. bear and you're learning about this specific polar bear's background and you're realizing this polar bear is here because this is the only place this polar bear can be you Mm -hmm. know and then you kind of start to think oh gosh What's going on with them out there wow i really that's really sad that this mm-hmm. thing happened to this animal and you know i'll give you an example uh one of the polar bears that we had at the alaska zoo her name was a poon and she was actually born in the wild and mm-hmm. what happened was her mother had a den um, on the north slope of alaska near a little village known as point lay and she the mom had woken up at one point from her hibernation and uh which they really rarely do they the females will only hibernate when they're um giving birth but she came out of her her den and there was no sea ice and there were no seals for her to eat so she wandered over to a town looking for food Mm and um ended up getting shot Mm -hmm. And so she was killed by the villagers. And then there was this little baby Mm -hmm. sitting in a little Mm den who got rescued and taken to the zoo. Right. So um, and that's where where she lived her life. And Mm -hmm. so to be able to have that first person connection, you could really see the light start to flicker where people would say, oh, wow, climate change. That's actually not an abstract concept. That's direct. It happened mm-hmm. to this bear that I, I'm knowing and I'm loving, you know. And then they're really kind of walking away with a greater understanding of, mm-hmm. um, you know, how important these are. And really wanting to make a change. You know and to, to that point some some people say, oh yeah well if you want to go see a polar bear like they should just go see a polar bear in the wild um, yeah good luck you know to that. which i say like <laughs> have you ever seen a polar bear in the wild?" Right, right right because you know not only is it prohibitively expensive to find yourself in a lot of these habitats whether it's in you know the arctic or in the african savannah or whatever mm. but if all the people who visited zoos and aquariums every year Instead, we're going to the Arctic or going to the African Savannah or going wherever. Now we got a problem with carrying capacity because now Mm. we have all of these people essentially trampling around and sort of destroying these delicate environments in their enthusiasm Mm -hmm. to want to be a part of it. You know, so to which I say, isn't it better to have a small population of ambassador animals, essentially who couldn't survive anywhere else, who, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're getting a pretty good life, yeah. uh, where they get all their meals. They're not going to get eaten by a predator. And mm-hmm. those individuals can kind of serve as inspiration for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully at the end of the day, they can walk away really caring and understanding about them and wanting to make the world a better place for them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You've definitely given me a lot to reflect on. And <laughs> There's I, a lot I, there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really unpacked it quite well. Um, you know, I think a lot of the issues and the, you know, the ad- the adversion to it comes from these very publicized, like Tiger King, let's just be honest. I mean, Tiger King has done a lot of, I would say, negative impact because oh, yeah. now people just think, oh, well, it has to be like this for everything that has to do with the big cat world, you know, no matter what, you know, accreditations they have, they have to be just terrible and awful people because that's what people are being portrayed as and that's what they're getting their exposure to when in reality a lot of these places you know like the denver the houston zoos um not only is it about rehabilitation so you know helping animals get healthier and perhaps maybe re-releasing them into a the while but maybe not but also there's a lot of research that they can get from the animals as well and help us to better understand the ecosystems, the environments, the relationships between the uh, other animals that they lived with. So, you know, it serves a lot of good. And of course, like you said, you know, animals always belong in the wild, but if they have the choice of, okay, let's put them where they can be ambassadors and these good stewards of the animals and their plights and their struggles, um wouldn't you rather that than basically the other, only other option being so we're going to kill it
1: like literal death <laughs> yeah, yeah. <no>. um <laughs> and unfortunately with a lot of these animals there really is no in between you mm-hmm. know because when you have a big predator like a brown bear or mm-hmm. a polar bear or a black bear or whatever um getting used to humans sniffing around eating your trash that really does pose an actual existential threat to mm-hmm. you as a person that you're going to walk outside and get eaten by a bear, right? Yeah. So you you kind of can't mess around and say, Oh, well, I'm sure he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's a real public safety risk. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so having that other option, I agree, it's it's completely different than what you'd see mm-hmm. in, you know, something like Tiger King. And you know, it's funny, I, I compare Tiger King to what is the reality of those accredited zoos and aquariums? It's like comparing, I don't know, like a bum street performer To Cirque (laughs) du Soleil, you know, like they're both acrobats, but one of them standing on the corner throwing around some empty bottles that they found on the street. And the other one is this Mm world-class circus, you know, in Vegas. And, and to me, it's as stark of a difference Mm -hmm. as you would see in the Tiger King versus, you know, an actual facility that Mm -hmm. knows what it's doing and cares.
0: Yeah. I just think, um, definitely, um, People should be very careful with where they get their exposure and information or their kind of first experience when it comes to something um, as very um, large and you know, just sometimes even hard to completely just grasp like the, the zoo and then the work that these um, zookeepers and rehabilitation scientists and all this stuff you know. Um, I just think sometimes you know you've got to be careful where you're getting your information from because um, you know I'm pretty sure a lot of these people that have these accreditations and do these great jobs I mean they have to be just like really Tiger King what what what, oh, yeah. what, what were they thinking come it on it was a <laughs> sad day for
1: zookeepers everywhere yeah. when that mm-hmm. came out and mm-hmm. and yeah and you're exactly right and and you know I get it because obviously. Tiger King was sensational. And I Mm -hmm. watched every single episode and I loved Mm -hmm. them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a better story than Mm -hmm. the reality of, you know, a person like me going Mm -hmm. to the zoo and working on my behavioral plans for Mm -hmm. an hour and then weighing out all the food to the gram to make Mm -hmm. sure that I'm not overfeeding or underfeeding, you know, my animals. That's you get it. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a better story. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of those, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of those stories are even the ones that are not as sensational as Tiger King, like mm. I'm thinking of, you know, Blackfish was another one that came out that was mm-hmm. very impactful, that was very impactful for me, you know, and those those folks, I, I really very much um, appreciate and understand the message that they're trying to get across. And, you know, however, there's so much nuance. You're you're mm-hmm. exactly correct. There's so much nuance. And I'm not saying that I'm, you know, fully on board with every decision right. that SeaWorld has ever made. I have some things that I definitely disagree with them about. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think the important part is being open to the fact that if you are being sold a story, you know, needing to acknowledge that there are probably other stories that exist Mm -hmm. also. And, you know, do and doing the research. I mean, everybody says Mm -hmm. nowadays, like, go do your research. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that it is important, particularly when you are being hit um, by something emotional, that before you allow those emotions to just become your entire identity, um, to kind of, you know, now, I don't want to say fact checking, but but being open to consider Mm -hmm. the possibility that there are other things Mm -hmm. um that are also at work and uh and really looking at both sides of of the issues um to kind of and again you know i'm not pro everything that every organization has ever done but i do think that in a world that is fairly black and white Mm there is a lot of um depth there in the gray mm-hmm. uh, and and once you've dove down there you know whatever decision that a human wants to make I fully mm-hmm. support but I think that you know it, it is in everybody's best interest to not mm-hmm. rush to the obvious conclusion mm-hmm. without being open to the possibility that there are multiple conclusions if yeah. that makes sense
0: no absolutely it does and i mean and you know say what you want about tiger king you know like like is it a good show absolutely it was oh my gosh so <laughs> interesting like I, I like you can't you just can't turn your your, your eyes away from that oh, screen
1: every episode yeah, got I, weirder than the last yeah
0: and but you know i would say at least it did one thing and that it did highlight the terrible terrible people in this amazing field, and the bad things that they're doing, and outing them and getting rid of them. Agreed. So, I mean, if uh, you want to say anything, at least it showed us, okay, these people got to go, <laughs> yes, and we don't want these I <laughs> Fully agree with that. Mm-hmm. And you know, you—it's you, kind of funny because you mentioned, you know, accreditations and all these things that they have to do and these, you know, requirements. And you know, that's not that largely different than um, you know the guide dog industry. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Segway by way—that was
0: a really good segue because it's so true,
1: you know. And uh, and actually, when I when I first started working at Southeastern Guide Dogs, we were um, we were just expanding our service dog program, mm-hmm. and we had already been accredited with the International Guide Dog Federation, which mm-hmm. was you know the wing that was guide dogs. But mm-hmm. we were working on our accreditation for um, assistance dogs. Wait, that's not correct. Um, yeah, Assistance Dogs (laughs) international, um, yeah, ADI, yeah, thank you. I'm like, (laughs) what am I doing? Um, (laughs) We were working on getting our accreditation through, um, for the service dog program as Mm -hmm. well. And actually, and it was, it was funny because I had had, you know, some experience with Mm -hmm. this sort of paperwork in my other, um, careers. And so actually, as we were starting that process to get our service dog accreditation, I was part of the team. That was originally gathering kind of the first packet of oh. information for submission. I didn't finish it off. Um, I believe Tammy Proudy, our
0: mm-hmm. Vice
1: President of operations is the one that that got everything officially rolling for us. But I mean, we're talking mountains of I think we had a, at least one three inch binder filled to the brim with all of our behavioral plans for our dogs and all mm-hmm. of our, you know, nutritional things, our MSDS sheets about all the different chemicals that we yeah. used. Um, and they don't just ask about the dogs, you know, wanting to know about the employees yeah. and and all of the various training that they had to do and the certifications and all that. And just the, the absolute, yeah mountain of uh of documents that needed to be prepared not to mention that you also have um a lot of visits you have Mm -hmm. people that'll pop by either inspectors who are announced or sometimes unannounced to Mm -hmm. make sure that everything is the way that it should be even when you aren't expecting you know to be to be yeah. checked in on at that exact moment. And yeah, there was a, a lot, a lot, a lot of parallels between those accreditations. And, you know, now we are dual, dual
0: mm-hmm. accredited
1: in both of those areas, which we've worked really hard for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you moved back to Florida after your sister had the baby, uh, you just wanted to be closer uh, to family. Um, when did you join Southeastern Guide Dogs? Did you use um, a little bit of work prior to that?
1: No, it was actually um it was a jump it was a jump jump jump. Um mm-hmm. I got to Florida Atlanta of mm-hmm. 2012. Two thousand and twelve mm-hmm. and I took a month or two to just kind of enjoy the holidays. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I said to myself, you know, come January 1st, I'm going to start looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. And I started looking for jobs on January 1st of 2013. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew Mm -hmm. that I wanted to do something that had to do with animals. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at the zoo. I looked at Uh, Lowry Park Zoo, Florida Aquarium, Clearwater Marine Aquarium, just kind of seeing what they had. And then I happened upon a job opening at Mm -hmm. this place called Southeastern Guide Dogs that I had never heard of before. And it really struck my imagination because Mm -hmm. previously when I was working in Colorado as the director of education at Bluff Lake Nature Center, a couple of our volunteers at the nature center also volunteered at a service dog school in Colorado, Mm -hmm. not for guide dogs, but um service dogs, I believe, for veterans. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would talk about their stories of things they'd done and how fun that was. And you know, and I remember at the time being like, man, that sounds more fun than this. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like this nature's nature center is amazing, but we're talking about dogs, you know, so Uh so certainly when I got down here and realized there was a guide dog school, you know, about 45 minutes from where I was staying, Mm -hmm. I was intrigued by it. And then when I did a little research, I was even more intrigued by it. The job opening originally that I, um, I gravitated toward was different than what I'm doing now. It was actually um, an admissions and graduate services
0: coordinator.
1: Mm-hmm in our, um, alumni department mm. and, uh, Susie Wilburn, I believe she's been one of your guests before. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, so Susie actually hired me. I was her <laughs> assistant <How cool>. essentially. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty cool. We always joke about that now that I exist here because of Susie mm. and, uh, and I, and I, I joined the team there. I was excited about it. I, I had never really worked in admissions, um, graduate services, anything like that. And Mm -hmm. it was a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But I think that I was so interested in the company that I figured, you know what, let's start there, see what it's all about. If we stay there, cool. If something else comes up, that's a better fit. That's Mm -hmm. great. But I just really, you know, wanted to be a part of the organization. But actually it was funny though before i got the job because i was staying with my sister in tampa at the time and like i said it's about a 45 minute drive from tampa mm-hmm. down to palmetto and uh you know i saw the opening and i was looking at the drive and i was like ah oh, that seems it's just too far <laughs> you know it's just a little bit too far so i i went to the interview kind of hoping that i wouldn't like it (laughs) you know i was kind of like i just i want to get down there and i want it to sort of be terrible so that i can you know not take this job and have this 45 minute commute and uh, and I remember I, I pulled onto our campus, which is just beautiful, but mm-hmm. ironically, you know, nowadays, literally every single building that yeah. was standing <laughs> is gone and they're all replaced with new state-of-the-art buildings. But even at that time with the old buildings, mm-hmm. it was just beautiful, you know, and there's these magical oak trees everywhere and the mm-hmm. landscaping is lovely. And I, you know, I pulled in and I was like, oh, darn it, I <laughs> think I like this place. And, you know, went and had the interview and, met Susie and how can mm-hmm. you not love Susie? Uh, and absolutely. she, I just, mm-hmm. tell, yeah, we were going to have the same sense of humor, the same work ethic. So we had our interview and and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I got back to my car and I was, I was driving out of there and I called my sister and she asked how it went. And I was like, oh, I think it went well, oh,
0: I, think I really
1: want it. you know, and I was, um, and I was a little bit disappointed that I was so excited about it because I was like, this means I can't live in Tampa and I'm going to have to figure out, you know, someplace closer. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure enough, a couple of days later, I got the call that, um, you know, I was offered the job mm-hmm. and even at the time I was still trying to talk myself out of it because <laughs> I was like, it's too far away, you know? And, uh, and I'll never forget. I was in the, um, West shore mall in Tampa with my sister. Uh, I told him, I'd think about it, you know, and that day mm-hmm. I, I was just walking around the mall with my sister and her very tiny baby. And mm-hmm. there was one of those marquee kind of signs in the middle of the mall, you know, where the map is that shows you where all the stores are and sometimes they have advertisements for random things well on that particular day there was an advertisement for southeastern guide dogs Mm. in one of those mall marquees which working at southeastern guide dogs now i realize how rarely we would ever do those types of advertisements like Mm -hmm. having a mall marquee is not really what we do Mm -hmm. so the fact that i you know happened to see one was kind of kind of odd um in the first place but you know i saw the sign and i was like Mm. okay fine i hear you fine (laughs) i'll take the job you know (laughs) so i called Susie back and uh and accepted the job so Mm. I worked under Susie as the admissions and graduate services coordinator for about five or six months. Mm. Um, and then at that point, there was an opening on the walk thon department. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, which I know, you know, all about. Mm. And so I have a background in event management and they were making some changes over on the alumni side of things anyway. So, mm. um, my position was kind of changing it was just kind of good timing Mm -hmm. um so i went ahead and shifted over to the walkathon department Mm -hmm. and i worked there for the next two years and i planned our orlando walkathon our tampa walkathon and our saint petersburg walkathon and yeah and it was uh it was large-scale event planning Mm -hmm. unlike anything i'd ever experienced Mm -hmm. before but I really enjoyed, you know, um, getting to be a part of something like that and, um, large skill event planning in retrospect is not my jam. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not the logistics that are the issue for me. I um, I was very fearful of fundraising. I mm. just didn't have the confidence for it. I would actively talk people out of donating because <laughs> I felt uncomfortable and I wanted to leave. I just didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved working with the volunteers because at mm-hmm. that time and still I believe to this day, um, the volunteers were, were really responsible for planning a lot of the aspects of the events. We had these different mm-hmm. committees for the different cities. And I got to meet so many wonderful people. And, you know, over the course of the years, you know, planning these events, pulling them off as a team, getting to know everybody, everybody's so proud about it and getting to celebrate a job well done and all that. And I, I really loved that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So um, coming into my second season of those walkathons, um, Southeastern Guide Dog's previous volunteer services manager uh, accepted a position elsewhere. And that was the position I'd kind of been angling for the <laughs> whole time. You know, I sort of had my one eye on it while mm-hmm. I was doing the other things. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll never forget um, Shannon Starling, our human resources mm-hmm. vice president. She she loves to laugh at this story because I was down in the finance department turning in some walkathon money the moment that shannon sent out the email that said hey you know so and so's leaving and just so happens we have this position you know if anybody is interested whatever we're gonna start recruiting and i was in the finance office one of the ladies in finance was like oh wow look at that hmm. you know and i'm like what did you say what is that and uh when they read the email out loud to me i i, I literally i like turned and ran down the hall to uh our vice president of human resources um, office and I, I got to the door. I'm sweating. You know, I'm on. My hair is all weird. I'm, I'm like, you got to give me that job. I want to get that job. You know, and she's like, why are, why are you sweating? Like, what are, you know, what are, what are you doing? But uh, thankfully, you know, it worked out. And um, not just that conversation, but many conversations later, you know, kind of was able to talk about. Um, sort of what I had in mind and my background and all that kind of stuff. And so I was able to transition from walkathons over to um, the volunteer services department, which is where I've been ever since. And Mm -hmm. it was nice because, you know, I was really sad to leave my walkathon volunteers, but many of them actually volunteered on our campus also, in addition to working on the committee. So I actually got to keep a lot of them, you know, and they, they, they ended up being people that I managed, just sort of in a different capacity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and a lot of them are still a part of the organization, which is great. So, um, so now we have 270, um on-campus volunteers and these are all the folks that are working in the various buildings um, with the dogs uh they're working in Puppy Academy and Canine University Canine Assessment Center doing hands-on help um they're doing upper level positions as well like Puppy Education Canine Mm -hmm. Fitness we have you know shuttle drivers special event helpers people working in the kitchen people working at the welcome desk and so nowadays you know I just have the amazing Mm -hmm. opportunity that basically for my job I get to hang out with all these wonderful humans who have decided to be a part of the organization. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I always kind of say that anybody who would volunteer anywhere for any Mm -hmm. reason is probably a pretty good person, right? (laughs) Because they could do anything they wanted and they're Mm -hmm. giving back. And then secondly, I always... I say, you know, anybody who likes dogs is probably a pretty good person in my book. <laughs> so if you take dogs and volunteering and put them together, mm-hmm. it's kind of the ideal human. And so I really, you know, I, I basically get paid to hang out with some of the most incredible humans who've mm-hmm. ever existed, and uh, I absolutely love it. And I feel really fortunate that that's the direction that my career has taken me because I, I don't know that I would have expected it, but you mm-hmm. know, life, life happens, and yeah. I, I just am really thankful for the opportunity.
0: Yeah. So, um, first shout out to my walkathon team. I, I love, I love, love, love Jen and Mal and, uh, Jane, Taylor, Emily, uh, wherever you girls are at, I hope you're doing great. And, um, I know you're doing great things. So uh, shout out to the walkathon and, you know, that's what really helped me, you know, become confident in speaking and, you know, outreaching. So, you know, I, you know, I loved my time at walkathon. Um, you know, was very sad to have to stop, but, um, you know, never forget them. And then, of course, um, shout out to the amazing, and I truly mean amazing, volunteers that you manage. Oh, my God. So, of course, it's no secret anymore. If you haven't, you know, been listening, then, you you know, you've missed me, like, I don't know, 10, 20 times say that I worked the welcome desk when I started at <laughs> Southeastern Guide Dogs. And um, I worked, and, of course, I'm biased. Um, I worked with the best um, volunteers, um, Selena. Holmes, Joyce Penrod, Harriet Jordan, you know uh, Ruth Ann Howey, um, you know Denise Masters, you know just just these amazing, amazing people. And um, I owed every bit of my professionalism and learning how to become the coordinator that welcomed us to those amazing volunteers that you put behind that desk. Because my goodness, are they phenomenal! And I stay connected to them to this day. Um, I, I go to dinners with them about every quarter, um, because I, I love them that much and they will be just friends of mine forever. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how, you know, there are really so many incredible friendships that have sort of transcended the boundaries of, you know, Southeastern guide dogs. And, and I, and I really feel the same way I have. I have so many friends that I've just gotten to meet, whether that's fellow staff members or volunteers You know and then again you're meeting these amazing like-minded people and so you you grow relationships with them and friendships with them that really you know are beyond the the mission and the dogs which are so important but you know i have I have volunteers that i meet regularly for lunch and Mm -hmm. i have volunteers that i regularly go to dinner with and Mm um me and one of the volunteers richard campbell we go Mm -hmm. to the opera every year (laughs) um so he has season tickets to the opera and i've learned that i love the opera so it's it's just it's so it's such a wonderful place Mm -hmm. for for meeting incredible people who all want to make the world a better place and i think Mm -hmm. that's what it's all about
0: yeah I mean you work with some amazing people. I mean, a lot of these people just take the time out of their their busy lives. And, you know, some of them have retired and they just they want to do something and they found a second home and maybe even, you know, in, in their way, a, a second, you know, kind of just you know, end of life career for them to do and to put their time into. And really we can't undersell just how much the volunteers help the organization at southeastern guidelines or any nonprofit. i mean they really do a lot of work and especially for southeastern because of course we both know you know firsthand you know there's a lot of them working in the kennels with the puppies and doing that early education or people you know over in the vet center of course you know working in the offices and of course fundraising i mean oh my god the fundraising that the volunteers at Southeastern Guide Dogs do is insane. Uh, so, you know, we can't undersell just how important um, their work as a volunteer is.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like you said, it's in every every possible area of campus, they're Mm -hmm. helping us and then they're helping us with walkathons, they're helping us with puppy raising, they're helping us with their donations, or they're helping us, you know, get connected to organizations that want to partner with us. And, um, you know, when you really look at the ripple effect of everything that our volunteers provide, we absolutely would not be in business without them.
0: Mm -hmm. So Can you unpack a little bit about um, your job? So Director of Volunteer Services, what exactly does that mean to people listening?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people, it's funny because it seems like especially a lot of people that I meet that are not particularly people people, they're Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, your job is people, you know, and (laughs) kind of, oh, but uh, I I love it. It's so fun because um, number one, you know, as we've already established, Mm -hmm. incredible people, but Mm -hmm. number two, I think that, you know, Our organization is such that we have a lot of folks who have been committed for a very long time. And, you know, I think it's kind of a a magical combination of the mission, the puppies, the other people, our location just everything mm-hmm. kind of aligns so you know most of our volunteers have been a part of southeastern guide dogs for more than three years yeah and we have volunteers who've been five years 10 years 15. Mm-hmm. our longest serving volunteer marge vita has actually been a part of the organization for 23 years god bless uh, that just, woman i know she just passed her ten thousandth nope yeah ten thousandth hour of service mm. a couple of months ago um you know but she is not, I mean, she is our longest serving volunteer, but she's not an anomaly. We've got folks who have 8,000 hours or Mm -hmm. 5,000 hours or, you know, whatever. And so due to the commitment of our longstanding, long serving volunteers, it really frees up my department, the volunteer services department to function a little bit more like a human resources department Mm. than a classic volunteer services department that you'd see in a lot of organizations. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with volunteers, it's very much um, sort of a wheel of you know training, onboarding, mm-hmm. say goodbye, training mm-hmm. more people on you know, and a lot of recruitment, and it's just sort of um, you know you're you're sticking people into mm-hmm. some spot and they stay and then they leave and you start over and so you're you're really repeating yourself a lot because I don't have to do that. And my department Mm -hmm. doesn't really have to do that. Our attrition rate is very low with our volunteers. That means that we get to invest more of our time Mm -hmm. into the fun stuff like recognition programs for them to make sure that they feel like they are, um, being appreciated for all of their hard work and effort. We, we get to work on, um, events for them like we're <laughs> we're doing a big picnic this thursday and i've oh, got about 100 cool. volunteers coming which i'm excited it's our first event post covid oh um, that's awesome it's pretty cool so uh you know we get to do stuff like that and we get to really um be very imaginative in the types of trainings that we create for them mm-hmm. and the uh the different infrastructure that we have in place to support them the communications and you know so um a bit of my job is the orientation process you know Mm -hmm. for new volunteers giving them the general information that they need to be successful as well as identifying the area of campus where we think we're going to be most successful with them Mm -hmm. and you know making sure to kind of hand them off gently to the specific um manager who's going to be handling Mm -hmm. all of their general day-to-day things. But, you know, um, beyond that, it's a lot of just really keeping them in the loop, keeping them Mm -hmm. engaged, um, communicating with them about things that are happening, making them feel like they're part of the mission, Mm -hmm. um, any kind of changes that they want to make, questions that they have. There's so many different ways to get involved as well, whether it's with our, you know, Puppies and Puppy Academy, Mm -hmm. our patients in the vet center, um, the dogs that are undergoing our canine fitness program, Mm -hmm. you know, so really, kind of helping get them where they want to be um, the training that they need to be successful and the support along the way to Mm -hmm. ensure that it continues to be a positive experience for them Mm -hmm. so yeah all in all i'm just i'm just people in all day long and i i love it
0: yeah you know it's it's crazy because you know the volunteers at southeastern guide dogs and I'm, i'm pretty sure this could be felt across the nonprofit world you know you know I just you know it's just amazing, especially just from what I've seen with Southeastern Guide Dogs, and of course that's the nonprofit I can talk about because I work there. Um, it's like they're not even really volunteers; they're they're almost like full blown employees because oh, of just of the commitment and how they go above and beyond. I mean, I mean they go above and beyond in the line of duty, and they don't have to, but they do, and that's because they're so passionate about the organization they're volunteering at.
1: Right. Absolutely. And and to your point, you know, the fact that we have had so many who've been here for so long, you know, not only are they there to help us with the day-to-day tasks that need to be completed, but they really serve as a a knowledge base for us. Mm-hmm. Not only um, you know, having been a part of the organization for a period of season. So they've sort of seen how things go and changes and, you know, sort of understanding but also, you know, again, all of the expertise and skills and experience that they bring mm-hmm. to the table, um, based on whatever their unique life path has been, whether they're, mm-hmm. you know, a person who's been in um, finance or a person who's been in marketing, a person mm-hmm. who's been in whatever you name it, um, them being able to bring all that stuff to the table as well. Mm -hmm. it's just, it's really incredible. And, and yeah, and, and I agree with you that I think a lot of them, you know, they're more knowledgeable than some of the staff members than a lot of the staff (laughs) members in some ways. And, you know, I have, uh, you mentioned the volunteer Selena who works at the welcome desk. Oh my God. I'll tell you, she's only been a part of the organization for about five years, but I ask her questions about, you know, when something comes up and I am like, Selena, what do we do about X, Y, Z? And, you know, and I've been there almost 10 years and she knows more than me about certain aspects of the organization. That's because she never goes home. (laughs) She, yeah, you're right. She volunteers about a hundred hours a month. So she is basically an employee and, um, and yeah, and bringing all that passion with her and, and she's, you know, one of many incredible Mm -hmm. folks that all bring something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that's what kind of makes it fun too, for me is kind of identifying what is each person's kind of, um, Mm -hmm. individual strengths and superpowers and, you know, how can we plug them in in a way that's going to be, uh, Enjoyable for them. Mm-hmm. It's going to allow them to use their brain and kind of, you know, um, bring us some of that great knowledge that they've gained mm-hmm. through their lifetime to help us continue to be better and better at what we do.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I credit, you know, I have to because, oh my goodness, Selena was so helpful to me when I first started back in, oh man, so 2018. I think it, yeah yeah 17
1: 18 something yeah. like that yeah uh, I think 18
0: yeah but um you know when I first started um her and then um Carol um Jumbroni another phenomenal um volunteer at the welcome desk I mean they were kind of like doing like handling a lot of the onboarding for me kind of in, in, <laughs> I think in their too. own way like they were literally training me because they had that knowledge like you said like and they would test me, they would give me like mock, you know, examples and scenarios to work through. And, you know, they would sit down with me. And, you know, when we had the free time, and Andy would show me how to do it. And, you know, the, of course, the amazing thing for them is, um, you know, I, I, I worked with them, they, you know, they are visual people, I'm not, because I'm, I, I'm legally blind. And just their uh, willingness to let me tell them, what I was comfortable and uncomfortable with and then have them help me work through that. I mean, I owe so much of the professional I am to them. And, you know, just like you said, they are such a source of information and just, man, their knowledge sometimes just supersedes even like the CEO.
1: (laughs) I mean, absolutely. I think Selena could probably run the world if she wanted to. And and again, she's one of many.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's just, they're they're so amazing. And, you know, you, you have such a great, pool of volunteers that work for you and I know it's a very fulfilling job for you because I mean 10 years it's about to be 10 years I mean can, can, could you have imagined that with all the traveling you did all like you know the grand adventures I mean petting polar bears that's pretty extreme, that's pretty <laughs> epic did you really think at the end of the day that you would be at get, um southeastern guide dogs doing the volunteers and being their director
1: Yeah, you know, life is funny like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And yeah, I almost 10 years here. And to give you, you know, some perspective, the uh, the second longest job I've ever had was at the Alaska Zoo. And that was about three and a half years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what a difference. But uh, it's it's been wonderful. And I think, you know, I am a person who likes excitement and I'm a mm-hmm. person who likes variety, but I find that I get that um, <laughs> when you're working with people, right? Cause every day is going to be different. And, and, you know, and I think something else that I've really enjoyed that I hadn't ever gotten to experience with previous employers because i wasn't there long enough Mm -hmm. is you know you really do gain a wisdom about Mm -hmm. how things work and sort of seeing how things play out in time and you know and you'll um you'll try something and it either works or it doesn't and then you tweak it and you do something else and so um you know when i first started uh in my position it was a lot less Fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, we were a smaller organization then, right. so we didn't need to have all of the infrastructure. And I just really enjoyed the opportunity to actually get to. You know, build the infrastructure mm. for the department, as far as what kind of training do they need before they get started? And if I were a new volunteer, what would I want to see on my tour? Mm-hmm. And, you know, being given that creative freedom to pretty much structure the program. However, I think it's going to best work then, you know, obviously there's guardrails on that. If it's not effective, <laughs> we change our mind. Right? right. But I've really appreciated, um, from our management, the the green light to kind of be creative and explore Mm -hmm. and try different methods and not being married to the idea of like, oh, well, we've always done it this way. So we should continue to always do it this way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very innovative, um, you know, kind of very what's next, what's next. And Mm -hmm. um, and I've loved that. And uh, and I think as a result. I have a I have a high work ethic. I always have I, I get bored if I'm not being challenged. And, uh, and I I have definitely really enjoyed the ability to kind of make this department into what mm-hmm. I envisioned. And then, you know, as things keep coming, and things keep growing and evolving, the position just keeps growing and evolving with it. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's really exciting.
0: Yeah, you definitely in your free time, you still like to be adventurous and try new things. So.
1: That's true. That's so, true. So,
0: you and Matt were. Learning how to sing or something.
1: <laughs> that was that was a short-lived uh, little burst of COVID. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we were all doing we were all doing mm-hmm. strange things during COVID. He yeah. got into bread making, as people do. Mm-hmm. Um, we've squeaked out as much traveling as we mm-hmm. could possibly do in the midst of a pandemic. But mm-hmm. um, that's been fun. I actually, got to go back to Alaska last summer for the first time oh, in about awesome. ten years. So you know, um, it's it's been a beautiful life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So for people that are maybe interested in volunteering, um, maybe even volunteering for Southeastern Guide Dogs, um, what would your advice be for them?
1: Oh, I love that question. So <laughs> <laughs> come send me an email, maybe it's no. Um, I, I think that the biggest thing, you know, for a person who's considering volunteering, wherever it is, mm-hmm. Southeastern Guide Dogs or somewhere else, you know, is, is kind of, um, Really thinking about what it is that you want to do and what it is that you care about. And, you Mm -hmm. know, what does your timeline look like? Are you going to be somebody who's going to want to pick up shifts once a week? Are you somebody Mm -hmm. who'd rather kind of do projects on a one off basis as they come up. um, You know, Mm -hmm. how much training do you want? Do you want something where you can just bop in and and help Mm -hmm. when you want to, but then, you know, not feel guilty, if something comes up, and you got to kind of sway and change your plans. So, you know, I I would always encourage people to kind of consider where they are. Mm -hmm. And then once they kind of have that idea of what they're looking for, um, then they can really kind of narrow in where that's going to be a great website that I always recommend to people. Is this website called volunteer match where mm-hmm. you can actually um, sign on and you say I, you know, I live here in the Tampa Bay area mm-hmm. and I want to volunteer with animals search and then all these different volunteer opportunities will pop up in all kinds of different organizations and then you can kind of go through there and you know see what your fit is. And then you can um, move forward. Generally, there's links straight on that website where you can mm-hmm. go to the different organizations and fill out applications and learn about credentials and all that kind of stuff. With us specifically at Southeastern Guide Dogs, I would love to see <laughs> anybody who wants to join. Um, the way that we do things is that folks can apply to be a volunteer right on our website. So it's www.guidedogs there is a tab on the top that says get involved. Mm-hmm. And then you can follow the prompts to get to our volunteer page where there's a short self-assessment that you can fill out to just see if volunteering is going to be a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have some qualifications, like uh, number one, we do ask that folks commit to volunteering for a minimum of six months, mm-hmm. um, because we do put quite a lot of training yeah. into, you know, our volunteers, are going to be working hands-on with the dogs and there's a pretty high, you know, level of responsibility that we put into that. But we do ask folks to uh, commit to a minimum of six months Mm -hmm. and be willing to volunteer once a week. Mm -hmm. So um, some organizations will do kind of one-time projects like Habitat for Humanity and stuff like that. Um, For us, again, dealing with live animals, it's all about consistency. Mm -hmm. So typically it would be one shift a week, usually about two to three hours for the Mm -hmm. shift. Um, And generally to get started, you would just fill out that self assessment and then twice a month we do an orientation session. um, On our campus where folks can kind of come learn experience firsthand what it's all about and then, if it seems like it's going to be a good fit for them after attending orientation, um, then we can go on into talking about the exact openings Mm -hmm. that we have available. Um, the trainings and generally from start to finish once folks join that orientation session it'll be about two weeks before their first day mm-hmm. So not a huge turnaround time and yeah. um, we love 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 it when people yeah. come and meet us so it's yeah. always uh, always exciting to have
0: folks joining the team. Yeah absolutely. well Lisa, thank you so so much for sitting down with me today I'm, I'm so happy I could get you on the show. Um, you know, I said before when I was introducing you, um, you really were a, a great mentor for me when I first started out because, um, you know, I, I, got my first job with Southeastern Guide Dogs when I was straight out of college. And, um, just due to the ableism that this world still continues to, um, experience when it comes to disabled people, I never got the chance to work. So I had zero work experience and no idea what I was doing, um, but you, Alexandria Young and Andrea Inman, you were so essential to me to learning about myself, discovering just the professional that I could be. So thank you so much for being there for me in those formative years when I really had no idea what the heck I was
1: doing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, um, quick kind of little story about that. I, I still remember the day that I looked at your resume for the first time because you'd applied for the position at the welcome mm. desk. And, you know, we had a stack of resumes and so just impressed with your eloquence. And when we called you for an interview, um, I was on the phone. I remember yeah, it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Shannon and me and a couple other people. And, you know, we got off the phone and I, I turned to our vice president of human resources. And I said, you know, that guy has really got it. You know, (laughs) I, I, I love that guy. He was, he was so well-spoken. He was so thoughtful. He was so articulate. I think he's going to knock our socks off. And you did, and you continue to. So um, it really is a pleasure to get to call you a friend, watch your journey. Uh, I feel so proud of all the things that you've accomplished. And I'm just so happy um, to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with you.
0: (laughs) You're going to make me blush and cry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Blush and cry both Uh, at the same time.
0: Thank you so much. That really means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy I could have you on the show today absolutely thanks again absolutely hey well hey guys that is going to be it for the episode today but remember if you have any questions for my guests but maybe you're a little too shy to you know ask them yourselves you know you can send me an email it's cmbouton. that's c m as in michael b as in boy c m b o u t o n cmboughton at yahoo.com and if you want to follow what's going on the announcements maybe you know some stuff that's going on behind the scenes there is a Twitter page for the podcast. It's at 2200 hindsight. That is two zero two zero zero hindsight, all one word at 2200 hindsight. And remember, if you know anybody that would love to listen to the podcast, but them know that we're on anchor Spotify and Apple podcast hindsight is 20 slash 200. Please make sure to put the slash in between the 20 and 200 hindsight is 20 slash 200. Well, you guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much. As I always say, until we meet again, be kind, take care of yourselves, and yeah, see you guys soon. Bye!